welcome to Genderfuck, the sexual health and wellness podcast ran by trans people and for trans people. I'm your host, Dan Griffiths. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm Oliver Ellis, and my pronouns are also he, him. So today we're doing an episode about libido and all of that jazz, but we're just going to have a little catch up because we've been gone for like a month over the break. Um, yeah, it's been so long. <laughs> I can't believe that. I feel so rusty. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um... Yeah, I feel like simultaneously rusty, but also like it's literally been like a week. Like time has gone by so fast. I <laughs> like I feel like I've done simultaneously so much and also so little in the amount of time since we last recorded. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's always how it goes. Um, but yeah, how was how was your sort of holidays? How did things go for you? It was pretty good. I saw my family. My partner came to come and see my family, and then I went to go visit his for a bit, which was super cute. And then. Aww. I also guested on another podcast, uh, Q for Q, Queer Personal Ads podcast. I was on episode 14. I'll link it in the show notes. But we basically just kind of like found like a bunch of like old personal ads that were written by like trans or like genderqueer people. And then we just kind of like talked through them and like said what we thought about them, like if we would kind of send them a letter and stuff like that it was really cute that's so cool i love that like concept for a podcast as well like it's such a good idea it's like so smart and there's like so many people i was like i wish i like knew more about this person and like i could ask them like what came of this ad like yeah i feel like i would just be so curious it's like you should track down these people you know (laughs) that they tried to track down some people but then it's also like so hard because a lot of people would just send like a letter to the editor and then they like you would if you wanted to reply to them you'd basically say like which one you wanted to send it to and then send that to the editor mm-hmm. instead of to the person directly so you don't actually have like much like much of their like contact details or anything yeah. like that and then plus like it's been so many years mm-hmm. they've probably moved around or like passed away yeah or something. for sure and people's privacy i guess as well i don't want to like yeah investigate yeah. into their lives like show up <laughs> at their door but, <laughs> but it would still be interesting <laughs> but then i'm also so curious <laughs> Um, have you done much over this Christmas break? Um, yeah, so me and my partner went um, back to Illinois to see my family for Christmas and, for Christmas and New Year's, um, which was, sorry, my, I'm not used to, to speaking on on recording. Um, but yeah, so we went home uh, back to Illinois for Christmas and New Year's, um, and it was, it was a really great time. Got to see my family. Um, went into Chicago a couple of times because we live like about an hour out. Um, we went to this really cool like leather archive and museum in Chicago, um, had loads of stuff around queer history and leather and kink and like was just an amazing experience really. We like didn't really know what to expect, but it was, it was so cool. And there was lots of stuff about like trans history within the leather community and stuff. And, um, I'll, I'll put the link in the description to the website and stuff. Cause it's like definitely worth uh, going if you're anywhere near Chicago or like having a look online because it, really cool stuff. I want to go so bad. I saw the pictures that you put on your instagram story and i was like fuck that looks actually so cool (laughs) yeah you would love it it was it was so so cool it reminded me of the um sex museum in amsterdam that i went to that was like it was really cool but then it wasn't very there was like only like a tiny little bit that was like kind of lgbt and it was kind of like tucked Mm -hmm. away in the corner like most of it was straight people and i remember there was like in the sex museum, there was like a little room that had like a lot of photography of like quite hardcore BDSM things. Mm. And then there were these other two girls in the room with me and I was by myself because I took like a day trip to Amsterdam by myself. Um, and they were just there like, what the fuck? Like, what the hell? This is so weird. And I was just sat there like quietly just taking pictures like, oh, this is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like you get yeah different kinds of people going to museums like that of like going because it seems weird and out there and also going because like you have an interest and you actually already know a lot about it. <laughs> you're just like a weird little sex nerd and you're like, ooh, I love that. <laughs> weird little sex nerd, yeah. Yeah. But like that encompasses our, our podcast. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be trying to get a PhD in sex stuff if I wasn't a weird little sex nerd, so. <laughs> I hope you, your actual PhD is just called sex stuff because I think that would be great. <laughs> Doctor of sex stuff. Trans sex stuff. That's my PhD. Not like yeah, a PhD literally in psychology or anything. <laughs> it will be a sex, but it's a good thing to be, I think. <laughs> okay, should we? Should we get started? Yeah, um, we can get into it now. I don't know why I keep doing that accent lately. 
Um, yeah, okay. So, so again, as Dan said, this episode is all about libido and sort of sex drive. Um, looking at the sort of historical side of things, um, so libido comes from like a Latin word meaning desire or lust. Um, and it was pretty early on used by Freud, who, um, as, as you know, psychology majors, we love to hate because... I mean, yeah, we could we could go on for ages about hating Freud, um, but his sort of use of the term libido for kind of energy put into sexual urges was quite um, influential in terms of mm-hmm. like how people thought about motivation and drive. You know, it kind of went from Freud being like everyone does things because of sex, um, and he called that libido to um, people like Carl Jung using the sort of theory of libido being more about any kind of life forces, like not really being about Mm. sex, but just sort of about drive and motivation. Um, So a lot of the kind of psychological aspect of motivation actually comes from some of Freud's thoughts about sort of sex and and how it how the urges kind of drive our lives. Um, but we probably don't need to talk too much about Freud because, <laughs> because it's not really important anyway. Yeah. He'll <laughs> set me off um, from like an anti-Freud rant. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of other kind of things that have historically been talked about around libido, um, there's been a lot of stigma of people with vulvas kind of wanting sex and having a sex drive. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something that I feel like we have kind of mentioned in other, other episodes before. Um, but, you know, historically focusing on cis women, um, not really being allowed to express sexuality. Um, and so I think we're kind of slowly getting into a time where we can normalize that that people with vulvas can desire sex and can experience pleasure um, and all of that stuff. Um, because obviously, obviously they can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions around around libido and sex and, and about it being kind of intrinsically linked to a partner as well. You know, I think some people feel like, oh, if my partner um, has a low sex drive, that maybe means something about me. Like maybe I'm not hot enough. Maybe I'm not turning my partner on. Yeah. Um, but in reality, there's, there's so many individual factors around libido and sex drive and everything like that, um, which we will get into a bit more <laughs> this episode. But um, yeah, so I think Dan is going to take us through some of the actual kind of science behind yeah. um, the sort of ways people think about libido. I think I'm going to turn into, I'm going to practice when a guest lecture for my master's slash PhD <laughs> supervisor and be a little lecturer for a bit but <laughs> nice I just, i'll be a student yeah, I can hey. do that. um i just want to start off by saying that like a lot of the stuff that i'm taking and like kind of presenting is from dr emily nagoski's book come as you are which i think is like a really fundamental book that most people should read especially if you're already into kind of sex psychology and stuff like that because i think it's like a really well researched it's very like comforting um but she most of her book is based off the second model that I will talk about, but I'm just going to go over like the first kind of like first fundamental model of sexual response and kind of all of that. So that was uh, Master Masters and Johnson's uh, four phase model that was from the 1960s, and they basically they measured kind of physiological aspects of sexual response, so like heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, and like genital changes in over 750 cis men and women. The first phase is excitement, so that's kind of like blood flow and dilation into the kind of genitals and like other areas of your body, so kind of like erogenous zones, stuff like that, which kind of results in kind of penile erection, vaginal lubrication, and that kind of like occurs within the first kind of 10 to 30 seconds of like mental or genital stimulation. Um, And then this phase also kind of involves increased heart rate and blood pressure, and then the second phase is the plateau phase, so that's increased sexual tension, heart rate, blood pressure, and muscle tension. Then phase three is orgasm, which is characterized by muscle spasm, ejaculation in people with a penis, uh, and then vaginal and uterine contraction with people with a vulva. And then the fourth stage is resolution. The sexual system returns to its unaroused state. And then people with a penis also experience a refractory period where they are unable to become aroused for a certain amount of time. But if you kind of think about it, this doesn't actually kind of involve anything outside of like physiological factors of sex. It doesn't involve kind of our kind of motivation, our desire for sex, other like physiological and like psychological components of it um there's a lot of emphasis on orgasm as well uh people can have like a very sexual like sexually satisfying experience without an orgasm or you could have a sexual experience where you do orgasm but you don't feel satisfied from that experience um and then it also only really focused on cisgender and heterosexual people which is mostly a reflection of the time because it was the 1960s 
but we can't really say with certainty that these four stages would happen in the same kind of way in gender or sexual minorities because it hasn't really been tested. Yeah, it's interesting as well because it, it kind of feels very kind of one mm-hmm. way and rigid and like some of the ways that we we don't want to talk about sex, you know, it's like you go from stage one to stage two to stage three yeah. and then stage four, you know, whereas like sex might be a little bit more like back and forth than that. Like it, it does seem like, um, you know, you might go from back from stage two to stage one or you go to stage three, but then you go yeah. back and do it again. Or, you know, like there's so many different kind of ways that I guess it doesn't always have to be like from one to four. Yeah. I think that's one of the, another like really big problem with the model is that like, it's so linear that people kind of, you could get misdiagnosed as having some kind of like a sexual dysfunction because you're not going through this very like quote unquote normative mm-hmm. sexual response that you quote unquote should be going through. Um, but obviously that's not true. And like sex is so weird and fluid and things can go in any which way direction and it's still normal and fine. It doesn't yeah, really that's... intrinsically mean that you're like diseased or something like that. No, absolutely. And I think linear is such a good way to put it as well because, and you know, sex might be linear for some people, but the, but there's so many different kind of options and then, mm-hmm. you know, having it be a more sort of fluid thing um, is definitely something that would probably reach a, a more people if they looked into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the second model that I'm going to talk about, which I kind of, I quite like personally, I really like the way that it's explained in Come As You Are, which is the dual control model, which was developed by Janssen and Bancroft in the 1990s. And they were at the Kinsey Institute, which is like the big kind of institute for sex research in America. Um, and it's basically based off the idea that within our central nervous system, we have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic branch. So the sympathetic is kind of, it's involved in activation. So whenever you're like anxious or something, you're having like a fight or flight response and like your heartbeat's going up, you're more aware of stuff. That's your sympathetic nervous system kind of acting in. And then once that kind of threat or something is gone, if I'm using like the anxiety metaphor, um, the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and then that kind of brings in the rest and digest response. So that's kind of like your heart rate goes back to normal you can actually like digest food and stuff like that. Like you feel calm. Um, and it's basically based off these two kind of branches, um, but for sex basically. Um, so firstly you have your sexual excitation system. So that's kind of like an accelerator, which is the sympathetic one. Uh, and this kind of in come as you are, she describes like the actual areas of the brain that are involved in these systems, but I'm not going to lie. I kind of didn't really feel like talking about it because I feel like it would have been like so much information. I'm already putting so much information in this. I'm like, I feel like that would be a bit too much for a podcast. Um, But it is in there. Um, So like the kind of sexual accelerator is, she kind of describes it as like a car. So you've got the accelerator and the brakes. Um, And then the accelerator receives information about like sex related stimuli, like seeing something, hearing something, smelling something, touching something, having like a certain kind of imagination about something sexual. This kind of sends signals to your genitals to kind of turn on. Um, And like this is like constantly running like underneath everything, which like includes like kind of scanning for like thoughts or feelings about like something sexual. Like, you don't really realize that it's, like, always kind of there until, like, it kind of turns on and you're, like, turned on, you're, like, seeking something sexual, but, like, it's there. Um, <laughs> it's always there. <laughs> it's always there. It's waiting. Um, and then you have the sexual inhibition system, which is actually broken into two types of breaks. So I don't know anything about cars. I'm <laughs> gay. I don't drive. Um <laughs> Some of this might make more sense to another person. Like, I think I get it in the car and like thing that she's using, but you know, so (laughs) the first break is kind of like the opposite way of the accelerator where it just kind of like searches for threats in the environment and then sends turn off signals to your genitals. So it could be kind of like responding to stimuli, like kind of if you're worried that maybe you're having like a one night stand, you're worried about getting an STI or something or like an unintended pregnancy because there's no condoms around or something like that. Or you're concerned about like the sexual consequences of something that's like a very immediate kind of threat. Um, 
And the second one is like a handbrake. This is the one where it's like, I don't drive. I don't know anything about this. <laughs> but she basically describes it as like a chronic low level, like no thank you signal. So like you can drive with your handbrake on apparently, but it just takes longer and uses more gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of stuff like having a fear of like a kind of like performance fear or like worried that you're not going to have an orgasm or like if you're kind of doing something like a little bit handsy and then kind of being worried that it's going to turn into sex and you don't really want that to be sex and like kind of these little like things that kind of make you just be a bit like "Mm, no don't want it um so having these two kind of like accelerator and like brake systems can be quite like helpful way to kind of conceptualize like sexual functioning and dysfunction as like a relationship between brakes and accelerators so like if someone is really struggling with kind of orgasm and desire, it could be that they're kind of pushing on the brakes more than the pushing on the accelerator. And then like the brakes and accelerators are traits. We all have them. They're pretty stable over time. So kind of like, I guess if you say like extroversion, like introversion, like everyone has like a level of both that you kind of, they can change over time, but they tend to stay pretty stable. Um, and then we also have like different sensitivities to like things that will push on your accelerator. So like something, if you're like really sensitive to your accelerator, then like you're going to push down on that, like a lot harder than someone who's a bit less sensitive, like kind of traits and stuff like that. It tends to be pretty normally distributed within a population. So that's kind of like, if you've ever done a statistics class, it's like the typical like bell curve kind of a thing. So there's a minority of people at the very low end of a sensitivity, most people around the middle, and then there's a few people around like the high end of the sensitivity. That's interesting. And I guess the sort of like the sensitivity thing is almost like it's like your style of driving, you know, like some people drive and they hit the brakes really early or they're always really cautious, but then other people are just like hit, hitting the brakes at the very last moment or like, you know, I think yeah. it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, and I do like the, you know, the two different brakes as well, because I feel mm. like you know, those two styles of brakes are definitely something that I've like felt, you know, like the sort of, you know, still kind of accelerating, but, you know, slowing down every once in a while with like the, you know, the first brake, but then the handbrake, you know, being in that kind of headspace of like going slow and like not really opening yourself up to things, you know, like, um, mm. you know, having that sort of anxiety around something can really like affect how sort of sex feels for you and how sort of you go about it. So, um yeah i like i like this um theory as well it's cool yeah i think like and i I think like the handbrake thing could be kind of for some people could be like a low level of like not even just like a low level just like feeling a baseline level of like dysphoria Mm -hmm. like pretty much all the time like i get that sometimes especially if i'm in like a really just like dysphoric Mm -hmm. period where i'm just like kind of stuck in a rut like that low level just makes me just be a bit like no thank you to anything yeah totally which i think is like i think it's like a really nice easy way to kind of like conceptualize these things but like with anything in psychology like there's a million different theories Mm. so someone else's favorite theory could be a completely different one like so they all have like quite a lot of like research and stuff behind it but like i don't want it to make it seem like this is like the end all be all kind of model of sexual responses and stuff like that because where like sex psychology is a pretty mm-hmm. new science, I'm not gonna yeah, lie. Totally. And it's pretty under researched half the time. So Yeah. There's only so much that we can kind of like find. And like that's why I really like Emily Nagosu's book, because she's kind of done a lot of the work for me. She's it's a really, really well researched book. Like I think like half the end of the book is just like <laughs> references. Um but yeah. Um there's also in Emily Nagoski's book, there's a sexual temperament questionnaire that she's put in. I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes or something. But like she describes it as kind of like a Cosmo version of the science. Like it's not like a validated scale mm-hmm. or anything that you would get in like a clinician's office or something like that. But you basically just like fill out, like you just suck like a number and then you add up your scores for like inhibition and like excitation and stuff like that. And then there's some descriptions about what kind of your scores mean like how you tend to be it sounds Um, like a personality test or something i I love that i want to take it (laughs) i can send it to you there i've got like a um i have like a pdf version because i have the epub Mm. but then i 
converted it because I really don't like the EPUB on MacBooks, but that's my own <laughs> deal. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'll see if I can put that somewhere and you can like have mm-hmm. a look at it. But I think it's like a really quite helpful thing. But and it's also um, another thing. I'm like jumping around because I'm weird. <laughs> um, but another point is that most, if not all, things that are like accelerator or brakes respond to um, are learned. Very little is mm-hmm. innate. So you are you when you're growing up and you're going through sex education, going through different experiences in your life and stuff like that. Um, you learn to associate particular stimuli with excitation and inhibition. So, for example, we learned that contracting an STI is like a negative health outcome kind of a thing. So we want to avoid it to kind of like avoid future health problems and stuff like that. Um, so that's why there's a lot of, there's like, it's easier to kind of treat it if there's something that's like particularly kind of bothering you, like with your brakes or accelerator it's a bit easier to kind of like look at what's going on what's kind of making you hit those Mm -hmm. things and kind of figure out a way to kind of alter it if that's something that you want to do yeah and you can kind of see how something like um even like if someone's feeling some like shame around their sexuality um how that could kind of turn into that sort of handbrake thing of you know it's something Mm -hmm. they want to do but there's still these kind of um unresolved feelings i guess that are maybe making it a little bit harder um and even just like sort of mental health as well. I mean, I think, um, you know, changes in your mental health can really influence your sex drive too, you know, like it can be, you know, low sex drive can be like a symptom of depression mm. um, or like if you're on some kind of medication, sometimes they either increase or decrease your libido. Um, but I mean, obviously people kind of deal with that in different ways. You know, some people might have more sex to cope with stress they're feeling. Some people might sort of turn off and have no interest in sex at all. Um, but I think, yeah, that could be a good way of kind of conceptualizing it, of like treating that issue rather than like seeing it of as an issue of like your sex drive as a whole. Yeah, that's like there's something that she talks about in Come As You Are where she describes people as I think flatliners or redliners, I think is the term that she mm-hmm. uses, where it's like redliners are people where if they're feeling stressed, then they push on the brakes and then they like kind of have a lot of like sex and stuff like that. Hi, sorry. Uh, editing down here, I meant to say that redliners push on their accelerator more than their brakes. Sorry about that. Um, and then flatliners are people who, when they're stressed, just like don't have any desire to have sex, like really at all, until the stress is kind of like processed and stuff like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I'm definitely that second one. <laughs> like it is like if I'm stressed, like sex is just not on my mind. <laughs> Same. So I think we should try to like have a look at kind of if you feel that you're like hitting the brakes a lot um because i think this might be a bit of an easier thing to kind of go through um kind of what kind of things you could be doing to ease the brakes a little bit kind of wiggle your way back into kind of if you are wanting to have more sex and stuff like that but feel like you just like can't stop pushing on the brakes kind of a thing what kind of things you could be doing and working on to try and like ease off a little bit this kind of like this is sort of optavic so sorry i didn't even put this in the notes <laughs> but um i came across um some criticisms of the like enthusiastic model of sex um which in the consent and stuff which i think we talked about all the way in the first episode um yeah. i think it can be really helpful in some ways but then also um like a very valid critique that like you're not always gonna feel like super super enthusiastic about sex but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't want to have sex or that you shouldn't be having sex Mm. um like there are sometimes you do have these you know little things in the back of your head that you know might mean that you're hitting those breaks a little bit more um and that i don't know that just kind of reminds me of sort of what we're talking about now um because it doesn't always have to be like, yes, 100%, I'm super enthusiastic about this, woohoo. Like, you know, some people show their enthusiasm in different ways and some people like need a little bit more sort of reassurance and stuff and like a comfortable environment before they can actually kind of feel enthusiastic about it, you know? Yeah, that kind of reminds me of um, sometimes Kate from Dildorks talks about how sometimes she'll do kind of some kink stuff or like just sex stuff in general, just like if she's like feeling quite down where like she's not mm-hmm. particularly like that kind of enthusiastic but she knows at what she's kind of like kind of had that 
physical activity and like kind of the endorphins and kind of maybe some of the like dynamic like sub kink sub dom kink dynamics and stuff like that like she'll feel better afterwards um mm-hmm. so it kind of reminds me of that where it's like sometimes you just kind of want to have sex to make yourself feel better and it doesn't necessarily mean it's like unhealthy or anything like that because mm-hmm. like I think it would be unhealthy if you were kind of doing things really impulsively and putting yourself in danger and not really thinking about why you're doing that kind of a thing. But Mm -hmm. if you are really sure about like how, I'm trying to figure out how to word this, but it's like, if you're really sure about how, like why you're doing this, then I think if you're really, if you know why and you're willing to kind of like, I don't know, just like, I can't think of a way to finish that sentence. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of hard to sort of put into words, I guess. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess for me, it's like, just don't like force Mm. yourself into that enthusiasm either. You know, like obviously don't don't force yourself into having sex if you don't want to. But if you do want to have sex, but you're like, you can't really... I know. I think because for me, at least, it's it's quite hard for me to get really, really enthusiastic about stuff sometimes. Um, And that that isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, that's not something that people should feel any kind of shame about if they're wanting to have sex, but they're not like, I don't know, just super peppy and excited and enthusiastic, you know? Not like jumping on the person and like stuff like Mm -hmm. that, like some kind of like weird (laughs) rom-com where it's like everything's 100% all the time. It's like, that's not how it Mm -hmm. is. Like, that's... Just like a very like, I don't know, another kind of, we'll talk about it a bit later, but like a kind of media falsehood Mm -hmm. about kind of how you have to be when you're having sex and like how you're supposed to kind of act and look and all of this kind of a like Mm -hmm. thing, but it's just not true, love. It's just not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I keep doing that accent lately, I'm sorry. Um, So... Some common things that kind of make people hit the brakes could be kind of stress or they don't feel very affectionate towards their own body. They have a lot of expectations about what sex is quote unquote supposed to look like. Um, And they don't really have enough space in the, not have enough space, but they don't really like have space to kind of think about and kind of conceptualize what sex actually looks like and actually works like like outside of kind of narratives that we've been taught for a long time so they think that they're kind of doing it wrong kind of a thing um so i think like one really good way is to reduce the amount of stress you're having because as we were saying earlier like that can be like a really big like flat line just like don't want to do it um and i just want to say before because i know every time like someone would recommend me these things i would be a bit like eye roll like shut up like everyone fucking recommends this but then there's also a reason why everyone recommends these and like every time i do them i'm like i feel so much better (laughs) so try and like give things a go if you can like some things like maybe some kinds of like physical activity might not be physically possible for you because you have like some kind of chronic illness or disability or something like obviously if you can't do it don't force yourself into doing it try and do something else um but kind of like trying to get yourself through the stress cycle so basically like something stresses you out and then you're kind of in that kind of oh my god I'm everything sucks thing and then instead of just kind of like pushing it down and like trying to ignore it and go past it and like carry on with your day actually taking the time to like let that cycle finish like get that stress out of your body because you do kind of feel like physical tension and stuff like that um which might be inhibiting you Mm -hmm. from feeling desire and stuff like that um so some common things that people like to recommend are kind of meditation physical activity maybe just having a little bit of a cry having a bit of a laugh doing some guided journaling which i'm gonna start trying to do because i think i need Mm to (laughs) um but those tend to be some very good ways to do it and i think i quite like um headspace for meditation Mm -hmm. stuff i think they're quite good and then i quite like um just call it yoga with adrian yeah i I do this sometimes too you send me her videos all the time (laughs) yeah like i did um in my masters we had to do like a behavioral change assignment where we had to do like a certain activity for certain day certain (laughs) am i okay (laughs) 30 days um 
And then I did one of her videos every single day for the 30 days. And I was like, this feels incredible. No. And then as soon as I finished the assignment, I stopped doing it because <laughs> I'm a bad person. It's it's so hard to keep up that motivation, though. You know, I think, yeah, I mean, getting in yeah. a routine is so good. But then once you don't have a reason to do it, like I'm the same way of just kind of giving things up, which isn't great. But um, sometimes you just need a little bit of an extra push, I guess. So, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, things like things like yoga or anything that kind of sort of grounds you, you know, like I love going out and going on my silly little walks, you know, like it really helps me kind of, you know, clear my mind a little bit. Um, or even just like watching a TV show that sort of comforts you or like anything that kind of, um, I don't know, you know, can like get you feeling a bit more grounded than you were feeling before um, can be really useful. And things that like, you know, laughing, crying, journaling that like get out those emotions as well can help you kind of like mm -hmm. come to terms with the sort of stress you're feeling. Yeah. Cause I think physical exercise is really good if you're someone who kind of like sometimes if i'm feeling stressed i can like just feel it in my body mm -hmm. and i just feel so weird and tense and i'm just like clenching my like hands mm -hmm. like my neck's like not my neck my like shoulders are like raised up yeah. like i just feel tense and then i like will go for a walk or i will do some yoga or do something that kind of just gets that energy out of me and that just makes me feel so much better um so that's basically like a very good example of like completing that cycle and making yourself feel better yeah and i guess like the um in terms of guided meditation or headspace or anything like that like it's not always this like you know i think sometimes people think of it as this like you know, hour long meditative experience. Whereas like, it can actually be just five minutes of like, okay, like relax your shoulders, you know, like, mm. like tense up and then release, you know, all parts of your body, just like kind of really getting in touch with how your body is feeling and like allowing it to relax. Because sometimes we do just need like a, a quick little five minute reminder to like, you know, sit up straight or to like, yeah, just sort of like unclench our fists or something like that. Like really simple stuff. Yeah. I think most headspace things are only like five to 15 minutes, I think. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I did them quite a lot during my master's, but then I'm one of those people where I do meditation and I'll, I'll do it in the middle of the day because I'm stressed. And then I just mm. feel really sleepy and I'm like, I don't really want to do anything now. <laughs> yeah. So, Maybe if you're someone who's not like me, it might be a bit more helpful mm -hmm. to do in the <laughs> middle of the day. Um, but I think meditation is quite good for the next point that I'm going to talk about, where it's kind of like keeping you, making you a bit more mindful about your own body, I think, and like kind of navigating that. Because the next thing that I want to talk about is kind of how to be affectionate to your own body, which is something that a lot of people struggle with. Mm -hmm. I especially struggle with this as a trans person too because of dysphoria and stuff like that. Um, and it's basically like if you don't feel like you're attractive or you don't, not even like attractive, if you don't feel like good in your body, then it's quite hard sometimes to kind of navigate sexual situations and feel desirable and then feel desire and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you kind of need to like, it takes a long time. Like I'm not going to lie. I'm not. Yeah these aren't easy fixes basically but you have to basically try and like ditch the narrative that you are supposed to look a certain way like i know it's really hard because of social media and stuff like that and you see people who look how you think that you want to look or something like that and you're a bit like oh why don't i look like that i'd be happy if i look like that which most of the time aka all of the time that's <laughs> not true yeah <laughs> like i don't think as soon as you look like someone else you would be immediately happy because you're not kind of putting in the work to be happy in your body as you are right now i don't think changing your body would change the fact that there is something about you that you don't like mm -hmm. um so I think like one thing that's really good to kind of help with that is kind of cleansing your social media feed, which I think can be really hard, especially if you're like, if you're interacting with these like accounts quite a lot, then even if you kind of like unfollow them and stuff, they might still turn up on your like explore page and stuff like that. Like I'm making like a really big effort to try and like avoid kind of diet culture things because I just yeah. really don't like it. But then it still just like keeps coming up on my like for you page or my explore page and i'm like please leave me alone <laughs> so it can be really hard but i think blocking those accounts can be a good way to do that 
I'm one of those people where I always feel really bad blocking people for some reason. <laughs> like, I feel like they're going to get mad at me, but even if they don't know who I am. Um, <laughs> um, and then, like, another thing, which is, like, kind of actually, like, getting to know your body. So you could try and, like, this is, like, if you live alone or you live with a partner who's, like, cool with you doing this. Like, don't do this around, like, your parents' house, but, like, <laughs> walking around your house, like, butt-ass naked and stuff <laughs> like that. Like getting comfortable with being naked or just like sleeping naked or something like that. And then um, another exercise that people tend to use because a lot of people have kind of anxiety and self-esteem issues around like how their genitals look and because they don't mm. think it looks correct, which there's no such thing as a correct <laughs> genital. They are all perfectly fine and normal. Um, but just kind of like looking at your genitals, like maybe if you have like a little diagram of like what, each of the parts are so you can kind of get to know your body a bit better because that yeah. also is quite good if you don't have the language to kind of guide yourself or like a partner or something to guide them to places which you know feel good if you have the language and like know where things are then that can also help with that yeah totally. um and then also just like trying new physical activities or trying a new skill or something and like learning that your body is capable of a lot more than you kind of like pin it down to. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think I tend to get in that kind of rut of like, I'm not capable. I can't run cause I, I can't do it, but I'm not really trying to do it kind of a thing. Um, I'm just like pigeoning hole myself, like pigeonholing myself into this, like I can't do it mm. just cause I'm not trying. Um, so it's like, if you can try and like, do something like that then it might like help you be a bit more appreciative of your body a little bit yeah it's always like it's always quite nice to like i don't know just to kind of accomplish new things like um i was doing the whole like couch to 5k Mm. thing quite a bit um last year and kind of ended up trailing off and didn't really have the motivation once it got to winter but like at the beginning it was really cool because it's like you go from running you know three minutes to five minutes and even that jump like feels like Mm. a, a quite a big accomplishment um which I, I found to be pretty rewarding and stuff, which was cool. Um, but like, no matter what you're doing, I think, um, you know, another thing could be finding like parts of your body that you yeah. like um, and focusing on those, even if like there are other parts of your body that you really don't like. Um, because, you know, sometimes there's certain things like dysphoria that you just can't really ignore. Um, and that is okay. Like, I don't think you have to like every single part of yeah. your body, like all the time. Um, so I guess just focusing on, parts of your body but even like parts of your personality as well that you like think are cool mm. and like find sexy and stuff like that because i think um like it doesn't have to be you know all sunshine and rainbows all the time but like finding those little things to kind of be thankful for and to to keep you feeling sexy can be quite helpful yeah like i think going back to because i said earlier about journaling um you could there are some kind of like guided journaling things that you do where you kind of write like five things you're grateful for like five things that you like five goals for the day whatever you do it in the morning Mm -hmm. um so i think maybe like writing five things that you like about yourself um which could be something you like about your body but then it could also just be something about like your personality or something you've achieved because not every like you're not your value isn't based on your body um But Mm -hmm. it is, I think sometimes it is a bit hard to kind of take that message on. And sometimes you do just want your body to feel attractive um, or just like feel attractive in your body. Um, So Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that either. mm -hmm. So I don't think like, I see a lot of things sometimes where it's basically saying that like, you shouldn't be placing or like any kind of value on how you look kind of a thing which i agree to an extent because i think if you put all of your value on your appearance then i think you're kind of like shutting yourself off a bit mm. um but i don't think there's anything wrong with like looking at a body and being like damn i look fucking good like i think that's quite like yeah, a nice totally. empowering feeling like i love feeling like that mm. I don't think there's anything yeah. like, really wrong with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And like, I think, I guess our main point is that like everyone should and can feel like that. Like no matter sort of mm-hmm. how you compare yourself to other people, like we all deserve that, you know, looking in the mirror and just like thinking that you look hot, you know, like that's a great feeling. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I think like another thing that we wanted to talk about is kind of a lot of things that bring on our feelings of kind of inadequacy or that you're disordered or that you are 
wrong in some kind of a way which can impact how you feel sexually and stuff like that um and it's something that again emily nagoski in come as you are uh she describes three main kind of like myths um which is media medical and moral i think we might have talked about these before in another episode i can't remember which i think like it's really important to go over again um Mm -hmm. so the media one is basically just kind of like the you're inadequate message like you're not good enough so i think a lot of kind of publications like cosmo or goop like they try to be sex positive but i really don't fuck with either of them so (laughs) yeah um that the the kind of people where they do kind of those articles where it's like if you do this then you're a sexual goddess and it's like you have to have mastered like a million different sex positions and you have to do all of these kinky things and then you're good at sex and it's like that's not really how it works because like yeah it's more just like changing the normative view of sex into a different restrictive thing rather yeah. than like opening it up to to lots of different sort of ideas like I, th- I get what they're trying to do of like trying to because obviously before this the narrative was like uh particularly cis women shouldn't be interested in cake they shouldn't be interested in mm-hmm. sex they should save it for marriage and only use it for pregnancy and stuff like that but then i think it also can be quite restrictive to people who like don't like to use sex toys and don't really like to have sex very often which there's nothing wrong with either sides of those people but like i think it's kind of like that thing of like vanilla shaming that some people feel Mm -hmm. um but it's like all of these things should be normalized and i think sometimes the way that these publications go about it is just not really right yeah it's like it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine like in terms of the sort like like if people are trying to be really sex positive but then taking sex positivity to mean that you should be having lots of sex all the time and like Mm. that's all great and like obviously if that's what you want to do you should and that's absolutely cool but you know sex positivity for me is more about like you know having people feel comfortable and empowered to like make their own decisions about how much sex they want to be having like as much or as little as is right for them you know like it's not all about like i don't know yeah Yeah. it's just it's it's more than just having lots of sex and doing lots of kinks um it has to be more of an individual thing than that yeah i think it's kind of like the thing where it's like the kind of definition of like feminism that i like where it's like people should be allowed to obviously like within reason of that not hurting people ever but be able to make their own kind of decisions and choices about what they do with their own mm-hmm. body kind of a thing so it's like yeah. say a woman wants to be a stay-at-home mom and then another woman wants to be like a 24 7 dominatrix or something like they're both making those decisions and they're both equally entitled to do that yeah absolutely those are those are both absolutely cool uh, life choices yeah. and like we would you know support either person you know yeah, exactly and i think like if someone is completely happy being in a monogamous relationship, um, kind of having sex with their partner like once a month or something like that, but that's the amount and the frequency that they like to have sex and is comfortable for them. And then you have another person who goes out clubbing all the time and like has a lot of hookups. Like both of those people, if they're like aware of kind of like what they're doing and they're like, you know, doing stuff like how they sh- not should be, but like how like, if they're like safe about it i guess like because i don't really want people to be doing stuff that's like hurting themselves like both of those people are both equally entitled to do that you know yeah and they can both be sex positive in like those habits and stuff mm-hmm. i think it's more about just like not shaming people for the decisions that they want to make yeah with exactly. their own body mm-hmm. um because like i honestly like if i had two friends one of them like really didn't have very much sex the other one like had a million hookups all the time it really just genuinely does not impact me at all yeah unless they've done something like sleep with my partner or something without my consent mm. or something yeah. and i'm like what the fuck dude like that's different but like it's not impacting me and like i think a lot of the time i kind of have this thing where it's like are you just minding someone else's business yeah <laughs> like like when whenever people just kind of go off on these like rants of like if your man does this then he's gay kind of a thing <laughs> and it's like 
what? <laughs> it's like, are you just minding other people's business and like going into their bedroom for no reason? Yeah, basically, people love to do that, and I just don't get it. <laughs> Let's just let people do it. their own thing. It's like my biggest pet peeve mm-hmm. with like Twitter. Um. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> um, the other one that she goes through is kind of like the medical message. Um, and it's basically kind of. I guess if we went back to like the first model, like the four phases one, where it's like if someone wasn't experiencing sex in that linear way kind of a thing, then they are inherently disordered and something's wrong with them and they need medication treatment for that. Whereas like there are people who do need like treatment and help with stuff that's like a sexual mm-hmm. dysfunction or something, and that's completely yeah. fine. But it's the narrative that if you're not completely quote unquote normative, which no such thing um then you're disordered basically um and there was like a really nice quote that i liked in come as you are where it was like she described that like basically a woman's sexual response differs from a man she is diseased um except for pregnancy which is what sex is for one woman even told me that her male doctor said that her low sexual desire was caused by her body shutting down for her sex drive um, shutting down her sex drive in order to prevent her from getting pregnant, which like that's wow. not how this yeah. shit works. But this is someone who deals with patients, mm. and like that's really yeah. bad. Like, um, because I think I've seen so many horror stories about people who've gone to a male doc, like a cis male doctor, and just had them spew some really weird random shit about like how their body is supposed to be working sexually and they're just like huh <laughs> yeah there seems to be and it kind of like no go ahead <laughs> no you go i was just gonna say there's just so many and like this is probably a common thread throughout other episodes as well like even within the medical field there is so many misconceptions about sex um because i think a lot of people I mean, I don't know how much doctors actually learn about sex, like depending on their sort of root of, of medical practice, but I think so much of it is just influenced by like, um, yeah, these sort of like stigmatized views of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, um, like it's not like, I don't know, just because they're a doctor doesn't mean that they have all the answers about sex. And sometimes it means the opposite. Yeah. And I think it's like such a shame because I know people who have had something that's like in like impacting their like sex life like if they have really bad like sexual pain or something like that and their doctor's basically just been like no like that's fine which is like another side of this where it's like basically kind of insinuating that people with vulvas kind of are just like in pain all of the time yeah. and like doctors tend to just be like no it's okay and it's like mm, yeah, actually it's usually not okay. it's not yeah. okay <laughs> like usually they need some kind of a treatment mm-hmm. for this which is fine um and like the this kind of like quite stigmatizing and like sex negative kind of thing and like a lot like especially in the medical field can be really dangerous because it stops people from seeking help and especially if it's something like i don't know they've got really bad endometriosis or something like that that's causing them a lot of sexual pain if they leave that for a long time it could get worse or something like that or people are scared to i think we touched about this in our kink episode but people being scared to talk to their doctor about like the kink practices that they go like they do um which you would hope people would be able to be open and honest about what kind of things they're doing with their doctor. So their doctor has like the most information that they have about the patient and make like the best informed decisions about it and also not come to conclusions that are wrong. Mm-hmm. Like if someone comes in with like bruises on them or something from like an impact play scene, then they would know that that's from impact play rather than abuse unless the person says otherwise. Yeah. Um, but it's like, this kind of stigma and like these weird messaging it can be really damaging for people so i think like the medical industry kind of needs to catch <laughs> up a bit like now yeah definitely the last message that we need to go through um that people kind of need to try and work through there's a lot of good tips in come as you are for how to work through all of these different messages and stuff like i can't recommend this book <laughs> enough especially if you're struggling in some kind of a way and you feel like you're not normal because it is a really comforting book it's very just like you are normal 
everything around you is kind of chaos and awful. <laughs> um, and here's some ways to try and fix that and make you feel a bit better. Um, but like the last one is kind of the moral argument where it's like the kind of thing where it's like if you have sex for a slut kind of a mm. thing like if you have sex before marriage then you're a sinner or like if you don't like sex then you're frigid kind of a thing it's basically just kind of putting these weird like moral arguments on what someone's doing where it's kind of like what we were saying earlier where it's like it's really none of our business yeah these like weird and, contradicting like, opinions that like you really just can't win no matter like there's there's no way <laughs> yeah like when it comes to sex there's no way of winning with these arguments mm. and I think that's why it's so important to just kind of like be able to process that they're wrong yeah. and kind of get them out of your brain basically <laughs> um and just being like I like I struggle with things sometimes and like if I'm doing like a journaling thing I'll write down a cognition that's stressing me out so like I don't know say I don't know I'm trying to think of something like maybe like for example, say if I was worried because I'm like, I have a low libido or something, and I'm like, I feel like I should be having sex more often, like, blah, blah, blah. And then if I like actually write down after that, going through that and like writing, no, there's no need for me to be forcing myself to ha be having sex more often. Who is saying that I should be doing mm -hmm. this? Why do I feel like I should be doing this? Like, kind of like asking yourself questions about what you're thinking to kind of like get yourself to the root of it and kind of like see which bits you kind of need to like think about more. Yeah, I guess like- If that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. And I think like just writing it down can help because it sort of takes you away from the situation a little bit. Like it feels like you're separate yeah. than this sort of like thing that has been written on this piece of paper. And then you can kind of respond to it as it is like a statement rather than like your own internal feeling, which I think would probably make it, I don't know, I guess easier to critique, I guess. What I like doing is I will write it down and then I'll argue against it like I'm talking to a friend because yeah. you wouldn't talk to a friend the same way that you talk to yourself. Yeah, like if um, a friend came to you and was like, oh, like I'm not really feeling sex these days, like I feel like there's something wrong with me, like you would immediately be like, there's nothing wrong with you, like it's absolutely fine, you know, like exactly. only have as much sex as you want to have, you know, like treat yourself as you would treat like a good friend. I think that's one of the most helpful things is to get yourself out of that kind of like because if you're only talking to yourself then you will continue to kind of like go through these cycles mm -hmm. but then if you try and like take yourself away from the situation look at it like objectively and like you're talking to a friend then it's a lot easier to kind of be like actually no my brain is dumb yeah. <laughs> like it's talking shit <laughs> so i think that's quite a helpful tool to kind of go through those yeah no absolutely but yeah that's my section done. <laughs> nice nice um i've been lecturing <laughs> no i feel like we've both been talking for so long but um just the one last kind of topic that we did want to talk a little bit about um is sort of changes in sex drive over transition so um obviously like mm -hmm. hormones like testosterone estrogen progesterone um all have a huge impact on your sex drive so any part of life that sees a change in these hormones like puberty or pregnancy or menopause or like just general aging um is going to affect your libido so obviously when trans people take gender affirming hormones if that's something that they choose to do um, you know, there is a bit of a change in the sex drive, um, but there's not a lot of, you know, empirical evidence on how that actually happens. Um, anecdotally, there is the sort of perception that like testosterone just makes you like super duper horny all the time. <laughs> like there's like, I feel like people are talking about it like all the time, how like you become this, you know, like almost like a sex pest when you go on testosterone, <laughs> which, you know, may be true for some people, but definitely not true for all people. Um, lots of people yeah. sort of say that their desires and attitudes towards sex change and like even, you know, your sexualities can shift quite a bit. Um, so there's lots mm -hmm. of different kind of contributing factors to that in terms of like your hormones and sex drive, but also like changing social roles and like changing kind of how you feel about your body. Yeah, I think that's like a really important point to put in is like the kind of social mm -hmm. and like psychological aspects of transition too, because I think like... I when I started testosterone, I changed quite a lot mm. for the positive, yeah. um, and I think that my like kind of positive perceptions of myself and like not feeling as dysphoric as I did before was one of the most important things mm. for me sexually. Yeah. Like rather than 
the hormones i guess like the obviously like the hormones had a like an impact in that but i don't think it was like i got my first injection and i was like i want fucking sex <laughs> i think i think sometimes um and also like sometimes when i like first get my because i get nibido every three mm. months um and like at the very beginning of that three months like once i've gotten the injection i think i tend to be like a little bit more turned on than usual and then at the very end i'm a bit more like flatline like i don't really want to do anything so i think there is like something in the hormones there but then also so those could be like an accelerator basically at like the beginning of that three month yeah. period but then sometimes like the dysphoria or like because with testosterone some people get vaginal atrophy mm -hmm. like i do i think um and like that kind of fear of pain or like that dysphoria and stuff can be like a break. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like really interesting how kind of our hormones are basically like a little set, like second puberty and stuff like impacts this. Yeah. Also, I just want to say like for vaginal atrophy, I think you can get topical estrogen mm -hmm. prescribed for that. I'm going to, I have the worst memory in the world. <laughs> I forgot that I was even going to book an appointment for this so <laughs> this is a good little reminder then <laughs> and then i'm always like i should do that and see if i can get that prescribed um but basically like topical estrogen because i know like i was a bit worried about doing that because i was like what if that impacts my hormone levels or something like that but it honestly does not like it only really affects like the area that you put mm -hmm. it on so like i think you put it on like around like the vaginal opening mm -hmm. or something like that um it won't impact your testosterone levels like in your entire body or anything like that so you don't have to be worried about that but that's just like a little caveat that i wanted to add to that little thing just in case other people are experiencing that yeah no absolutely that's a really good point to make um and i think kind of what you were saying as well about like you know feeling different about your body and like the changes in dysphoria and stuff um like i definitely feel that as well like i think it's hard for me to mm. kind of separate that and like, you know, having more confidence in my body and myself with like how the hormones are affecting me, you know, like I can't really, like, it's hard for me to tell whether yeah. like changes in sex drive have been due to that or been due to hormones. Um, I think it's just like a relationship thing yeah. rather than causal yeah. maybe because like both things are kind of acting on each mm. other. So I don't think it's like, I guess I don't think it's like particularly negative. Like, I don't think it's, important that we differentiate between the two too much because i don't think they are that different yeah no absolutely um and yeah. i think especially for yeah like it's not like we need these sort of answers in our own personal lives um i guess just the science behind it can mm -hmm. be interesting to know sometimes um and there has been like there's one good study that i found um around like sex drive and transition um a 2020 study by um like defrain i think i'm not really sure how to pronounce the name um and colleagues um and they basically found that gender affirming hormones um produce like a short-term change in sexual desire on average so um, for trans women on estrogen, they found that sexual desire decreased in the first kind of three months after starting hormones. Um, but then when they tested them back again after a few years, um, they did all kind of evened out back around mm -hmm. like the baseline score of sexual desire. Um, and then it was kind of the opposite for trans men on testosterone where like sexual desire increased for the first few months and then kind of evened out again around the baselines after a few years. Um, but one interesting point in the study was that they looked at like dyadic and solitary sexual desire. So dyadic would basically mean sexual desire with another person and then solitary being on their own. So the, the results were a little bit more complicated for that. So when you separate it out, um, trans women found like for trans women, dyadic scores remained higher than the baseline after a few years, but the solitary scores um, were still at the baseline. Whereas for trans men, Solitary scores remained higher, but dyadic scores were at the baseline. So um, the results are a little bit complicated, but they still kind of conclu concluded that overall sexual desire did kind of even out around the baseline, both for trans men and trans women. Um, and obviously that is just one study and like mm -hmm. many people will have different experiences. Um, but for me, it kind of made sense around like the short term change, like when thinking about the sort of other changes in hormones that you go through in your life, like, you know, something like puberty where like transition is compared to puberty a lot. Like people call it like a second puberty. Um, and it sort of makes sense of that, like, you know, sort of flux in terms of your sex drive and, you know, people experience lots of different things during puberty, but then once you're done with it, it kind of calms down a little bit. So I thought that kind of made a bit of sense when I was reading it. Um, but again, it just, just one study. Yeah. I think I relate with that because I remember like, 
this isn't sexually, but like when I first started testosterone for like the first kind of year and a bit, I couldn't cry like at all. Like mm. I really like I'd be sad or like frustrated about something. I'd just be like, I don't want to cry so fucking bad, but I can't. <laughs> um, and I remember like a friend said that like he, uh, after like a couple of years, it completely just like came back and he could cry again. And I found that exactly the same. And I think it's just mm-hmm. like a thing of like the first couple of years of your transition, your body's still just kind of like, it's having a puberty basically like yeah it's trying to figure its shit out and then like after a couple <laughs> years like it levels off and it's a bit more stable and like things that you could do before that you can't or something like vice versa mm-hmm. like it'll even out a bit um because i think it's like if you compare like a if you have like a cis person or something you compare like them when they're first starting puberty when they're like 14 or something to them being an adult like their hormone levels and like everything like that and like how they act is a lot different mm-hmm. and obviously like some of that's like social shit but like you know yeah yeah of course hormones be important and they be weird so yeah I'm not an endocrinologist <laughs> so i don't know anything about it <laughs> yeah but yeah i think it's you know we have to acknowledge how these things affect our bodies and like our lives and like yeah even stuff like crying because i found that the sort of first year and uh, sort of as well in terms of like just not being able to like produce tears almost, mm-hmm. which is like such a weird experience. But then it does all kind of come back and kind of, I feel like you kind of center back in a place that feels more, I don't know, I don't want to use the term normal, but more kind of like baseline for yeah, each individual stable, person. You know, I think. I think that does kind of come back. Yeah. Yeah, for I, sure. Stable would be a good word for that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like we went down so many different paths in this episode. <laughs> yeah, a little but, bit. Yeah. It's been interesting though. I've liked learning about the different kind of sciencey things behind it and mm. all the different theories. It's been very cool. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. Uh, we know it's been a while since our last episode, so thanks so much for coming back. We'll be back to our regular schedule now of like posting episodes every couple weeks. Um, and as usual, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at genderfckpod. Um, we also have a curious cat for people to ask us questions. Um, we love hearing from you and getting feedback, so don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, we'll also put the link to the Q4Q podcast that Dan was on um, in the description, as well as sort of our usual resources. Um, but yeah, thanks again for listening and have a great week.